Welcome to Let's Get to Work, a podcast with stories of hope and inspiration for people experiencing blindness and vision loss, as well as those wanting to support us. Brought to you by the Employment Committee of the American Council of the Blind, a place where we talk about all things employment, from finding jobs, holding jobs, building careers, and challenging stigmas. Each podcast will consist of interviews with two visually impaired people who have chosen to travel down unique career paths. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's get to work. Hello, everyone. This is Brooke Jostad, the Employment Committee Chair. And I'm here with my guest that I'm interviewing today. His name is Chad Foster. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Brooke. Chad, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do for work and kind of your story from really when you started to pursue the field that you're in now? Sure. So I currently work at Red Hat, the software company. We were recently purchased by IBM last year for $34 billion. They they bought our company because we have a very innovative business model. And in particular, what I do is deal structuring. So I've been when I first joined Red Hat four years ago, I was a senior director for global deal management. And after that, I was asked to be the vice president for corporate and, and products and, and technologies finance, uh, running a, about a 200 person organization in support of the CFO. And I've recently taken an assignment back in sales to work on cross industry sales development. And so my career has been largely in the finance space, albeit in the pricing and and new business finance and deal structuring and deal strategy for technology deals. And so right now that is software at Red Hat. And obviously we have services that we sell along with the software, but previously, you know, it was working for large federal IT contractors selling either mission services or staff augmentation services or managed services to the U.S. federal government. And before that, it was consulting and commercial outsourcing. So I've done a lot of, I have a lot of experience with deals, mega deals, be them in North America or abroad and dealing with all the intricacies of what does the price need to be? How do we win it? What's the strategy? How are we actually going to monetize whatever it is that we win? And how do we balance you know, a pre-sale strategy with the point of sale strategy and a post-sales execution model where we can actually make make money at the same time. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of analysis involved, a lot of sales knowledge, a lot of product knowledge, a lot of, you know, got to have a deep knowledge with Excel or Sheets or whatever spreadsheet modeling tool that you're using so you can actually analyze that information. So that's been a little quick thumbnail of my career. And I went blind in college and you know, ended up lost my eyesight due to an inherited retinal condition, retinitis pigmentosa, and had to relearn how to learn, figure out how I was going to consume information. This was back before the internet. The internet was out, but it was 98, 99, wasn't really that pervasive. So I needed to get books on audio tape and record my lectures with a micro cassette recorder. And turns out I was a better blind student than I was a sighted student. I ended up making straight A's and the dean's list. And, and I, I think it's because that actually forced me instead of memorizing my lessons, which is a, a lot of what I think sighted people do. Certainly what, what I did before was just, just enough to kind of get by instead of actually consuming the information. So relearning how to learn and then 
ended up getting into the tech space after I graduated the University of Tennessee and started working for a global 500 consulting company, Accenture. It's Anderson Consulting now. And then just kind of progressed on from there. Is that kind of what you're looking for? Yeah, thank you for that, for telling that story. And so I want to go back and and hear more about college. So tell me what your plans mm-hmm. were when you were 18 getting into college and then how that switch took place as you were learning how to adapt to not having sight. Yeah, so at 18, 19 years old, at that time, I decided that I was going to go into the medical field. So I had a pre-medical focus in college. And then at about 19, 20 years old, my eyesight really began to fade. I noticed it in my micro, uh, actually, sorry, my anatomy and physiology classes where I, I could no longer see to identify the parts of the body. And so I had to get a medical withdrawal from my classes and then subsequently a medical withdrawal from my major. And that was a really difficult period for me. It was it was really hard. I was really sort of angry. I was depressed. I was sad because, you know, we asked children all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and none of them said they want to grow up and be a blind person, right? <laughs> but in, in order for me to, to kind of get beyond that, right, because it wasn't what I'd envisioned for myself. It wasn't, it, it wasn't what I... It, it wasn't part of my hopes and dreams for my future. It just, it was forced upon me. And I think that happens to all of us. Something happens in life that we don't want, but it's outside of our control. And so we have to learn how to adapt and thrive with that. But that didn't happen for me for two years, you know, for two years, one to two years, I was really sad, really depressed and bitter because my self-identity, you know, I didn't see myself um, you know, I, I wanted to go off and, and help people in the medical field. And now I doubted whether or not I could even help myself. So that was a really challenging period for me. And I eventually decided at that time that, you know, I'm pretty young. I can't feel sorry for myself for the, for the next 50 or 60 years if I'm so fortunate to live that long. So I've got to figure out a different path, right? There was a, there was a lot of feeling sorry for me for those one to two years, but then I decided, you know what, I I can't continue to do this. And the real tipping point for me was when I went to get my first guide dog. And for me, I met people there. Some of them were blind and they had mental impairments. Some of them were blind and they had uh, kidney problems because they were on dialysis because they had diabetes and some were deaf and blind. And that was a really remarkable experience for me because these people were facing their everyday reality with such living courage that it made me feel really pathetic about how I was feeling about my own situation. You know, I had had 23 years of relatively good eyesight, all on my hearing and kidney function. And, you know, despite some questionable decisions in my youth, all of my cognitive faculties. So that was a real epiphany that allowed me to learn that happiness is is not a feeling and it's not an emotion. It's a decision that we make every single day when we wake up. We can either choose to deliberately frame our perception or allow the circumstances of life to determine our happiness for us. And so that was a really great gift for me. I didn't choose the cards that I was dealt, but I could choose how I wanted to play them. And and that's where, you know, a lot of this really gets back to perspective and, and gratitude, which really became the foundation for everything for me moving forward. 
Thank you for sharing that and for sharing your perspective on happiness. Now, I spoke with you obviously before this interview and you shared with me that you also have a book that kind of talks more about that. So I wanted to give you some space to talk a little bit about that part of your career building. Sure. Yeah. So in the last, gosh, five or six years, I've been on a journey and it really started, I went to Harvard Business School. So I, my company was was really appreciative for all the contracts I brought in for the company at, at uh, SRA. I brought in billions of dollars in contracts because that was my job. But they said, hey, what can we do for you? And for some crazy reason, I said, send me to Harvard. And for some crazier reason, they said, okay. So they sent me to Harvard and I went to this executive leadership program and I was the first blind person to, to attend the program. And I was in Bill George's class and Bill George, he teaches authentic leadership. And he's also the former CEO of Medtronic and really fantastic leader. And in the class, it became obvious to me that I needed to, to put more effort behind using the gifts that I've been given with my blindness. You know, I like to think now that blindness is something, it was a gift for me that came in really ugly wrapping paper. And those insights began to be sown at when I was getting my guide dog, but really became obvious to me when I was at HBS. And people had sort of always told me throughout the normal course of the day that, hey, you're inspiring because I was, I don't know, showing up to work or doing something with my kids at school. And it didn't really feel sincere, authentic, or it just, I wasn't ready for it. I think I hadn't opened myself up to that dimension of myself. But then I was, I was elected as our graduating speaker for that class. And so I, I, for the first time, I tried to use my story and the lessons I've learned intentionally. And it was a really powerful experience for everybody there, but for me too. One guy decided to commission an opera inspired by my life story, but I was blown away myself because I, I didn't realize how rewarding it was to help other people with the trauma that I've been through, right? Using your struggle and turning that into your strength is an incredibly powerful concept. So by sharing the lessons that I've learned on stage, it makes going blind worth it, which is a really bizarre thing to say, but it's true. And so since then, I've started giving motivational keynote presentations all over the world. And I also started writing the book, Blind Ambition, because look, I can reach you know, at work, I can reach hundreds of people, thousands of people on stage. I can reach a lot of people, but with a book, I can reach potentially millions of people. So what I wanted to do was just package together the lessons that I've learned over the course of my journey in a way that can meet people where they are. So it's, there's a lot of storytelling in there. There's a structured way that we we talk about things, but I know that the lessons are, they're grounded in the research. And I know that your background ties off with this as well, Brooke, right? The, the science and the psychology of resilience and cognitive reframing and the stories we choose to tell ourselves and the meaning we attach to events, all of that is in there along with some exercises around resilience. Um, but, but I tell it in, a, in, an, in an anecdotal way so that it's, it's you know, a little more entertaining than just reading an academic textbook. And so that really is the impetus for Blind Ambition. That's the name of the book. It's called Blind Ambition, How to Go from Victim to Visionary. 
And it's one of those things that I'd always been talking about for a while and, and finally got the, uh, got the motivation, I guess, and the inspiration from HBS to follow through on that. And now it's, it was published on February 16th of this year through HarperCollins Leadership. It's available, obviously, wherever books are, are bought. And I can give links and all of that towards the back end of this. But that, that really was the reason that I wrote the book, just hoping to pass along lessons for people so that they don't have to go blind to learn what I learned. Right. Well, I think that's great that you were able to realize that in addition to the job that you do and getting that information out there and talking all about how to reframe our stories. Tell me when, now that you know what you know now in your mm-hmm. life, what would you tell your 19 year old self right now? Well, I would start with empathy because I think we have to meet people where they are. So there's, there's a time and a place for going down into the hole with that 19 year old self and allowing that moment to be. But I would also tell that 19 year old self, you have to invite that sadness and that pity to leave just as easily as it showed up because it's not taking you to where you want to be. We all could, and all of us, whether you're sighted or blind or whatever your ability or disability is, we can all look around and find legitimate reasons to fail, but they're not going to get us any reason in any closer, excuse me, towards our goals. So we have to figure out what are we willing to live with? And so I would, I would challenge my 19 year old self, you know, to be with it, be with that sadness for a little while, but but just as quickly, you know, move on, anchor yourself to the gratitude. And I was, I was very fortunate to have learned the lesson that I learned at such a young age, getting my first guide dog. A lot of people you know, aren't exposed to that. Right. And when you, you have something like that, it's different than, it's different than having somebody tell it to you when you see it firsthand, the way that I did at the school, it just seared it into my memory. Like, you know, look, none of us, signed up for our circumstances in life. I didn't sign up for for being blind. Well, I didn't sign up for being born in the best country on the planet either. I didn't sign up for being born at the dawn of the information age. I could have just as easily been born in medieval times, blind or deaf or both, right? And so we're all given these circumstances. None of them are the same. Life's not fair. Nobody said it was going to be fair, but at the end of our lives, you know, I have to own my life and my outcomes. I may not be responsible for all of my circumstances, but I have to be accountable for my life and its outcomes. Because if I'm not, who is? And at the end of my life, if I don't get what I want out of my life, all of the legitimate reasons in the world aren't going to change the fact that I didn't get what I want out of my life. So I use that to really push me towards effort and focus and determination so that I can keep pressing on and focus on the things that are inside my sphere of influence. Sounds like you really value focusing on the things that are within your control and letting go of things that are outside of your control. And you would encourage your younger self to do the same. That's true. Although I would say um, things that are outside of my control, I don't completely let those go. I, I choose to, visualize greatness for myself 
that includes the things I can't control. So my goals, you could call it goals, you could call it objectives, but I, I think of it as a vision of greatness, right? What is Chad's best self, Chad's future self? And at first that was, okay, I want to be a successful business person. And then as that started to become a reality, then it started to evolve. Okay, well, how can I help other people with what I've learned? Now, I can't change the fact that I've gone blind, but how can I make blind look good, right? The blind, I can't change. The stories I tell myself about my blindness, I can change. For example, I could tell myself that I'm blind because I have incredibly bad luck. Or I could tell myself that I went blind because I'm one of the few people on the planet with the strength and toughness to overcome it and help other people. Now, technically, both of those stories can be correct. One of those stories sets me up to be a victim and keeps me trapped. The other one sets me up to be a visionary and allows me to bounce back. So we have to be really careful about the stories that we tell ourselves because we all have those narrators in our mind. Some of them are productive. Some of them are not. And so we have to learn to be very intentional about the stories that we tell ourselves that take us where we want to go. Because at the end of our lives, we all become the stories that we tell ourselves. I appreciate that. I think that's important to remember that our stories have a lot of power. Chad, why don't you walk me through what a, your day-to-day looks like right now with your with your job, with this new book that came out? What does your day-to-day look like? I imagine you're not bored. <laughs> No, I'm definitely not bored. Day-to-day is a little bit different because of COVID. Before COVID, I traveled a lot for work. You and I chit-chatted a little bit about that before the call. I'm not traveling quite as much, although I did go to Aspen, Colorado, as I mentioned to you, skiing on vacation a couple of weeks ago, a week ago, and I just spent some time um, over the weekend away as well. But a typical day for me, it's, it's balancing my, my day job is obviously first and foremost in my family. And so typically I'll get up at 5 a.m. for my 5 a.m. workout. And so I'll do that for about an hour, hour and a half. And then I'll meditate for another 10 to 15 minutes. And then once I'm done with that, you know, I'm off to the shower and, and breakfast by 7, 7.30 at my virtual desk here, my home office by 7.30, 8 o'clock, something like that. And then I'll usually work until. I don't know, hopefully six or seven would be ideal. And then now there are things that what used to be the um, writing the book and editing the book and all of that in the evenings is now turning to promotion, uh, podcasts like this, just in my spare time, trying to get the word out there. And then obviously I'm also doing some some speaking as well. And just trying to squeeze everything in is, uh, is definitely a challenge. But I think the message is timely. I think a lot of people can benefit from hope and optimism and a way to turn inspiration into implementation. And that's what I'm talking about in Blind Ambition, whether I'm on stage or through the book. So I think the year that everyone's had with COVID, the impact it's had on the economy, you know, the social disruption that we've had, things that have gone on politically, there's a lot of divisiveness out there. And I think people really need that message of hope and optimism in a way to cultivate more resilience in their lives. So I feel very fortunate to be in a position to where hopefully I can help a few people get over that hump. So it sounds like you have a pretty busy day and COVID has changed that's the pace a little bit, but you're still moving at a pretty fast pace and helping people come together. 
Trying to. Yeah, I'm spending less time in airports and hotels, which is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so briefly, just walk us through what was your life like before COVID? I know you you told me before the call a little bit about your traveling. Yeah, I traveled a lot because I had global team all over the world. So people in on all major continents. And so I would, you know, well, the Asia Pacific region, I would do a few trips to Asia Pacific, whether it's China or Singapore or uh, Japan, and then you know several trips to the EMEA region, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Got team members there, and in Germany, and France, and the UK, and friends in Luxembourg, and you know, all, kind of all over, uh, mainly Europe, uh, and then North America. Of course, we you know, we have offices all over North America as well. So I would travel 100, 150 times. A year, sleep 150, 200 nights in a hotel every year. And, um, you know, it just takes, takes a lot of, takes a lot out of you because you don't really have a lot of time to do things that you would like to do, like spending time with your family. And, uh, you know, we're always, when you're always in an airport or packing or unpacking I and mean, just kind of refreshing the luggage, people would ask me where I live. And I said, well, to be honest with you, I live at the Marriott. I refresh my luggage in Atlanta, but I'm listening at the Marriott. And so from that aspect, I think COVID was a nice change of pace to not have to travel. I think too much of anything is a bad thing. I think too much travel is a bad thing and too much staying at home is a bad thing. I think we need a little bit of variety and an opportunity to sort of mix things up. And, and obviously there are lots of, you know, terrible things that happened as a result of COVID, um, you know, the, the medical issues that it's caused. And so I don't want to try and pretend that it's been a good thing, but in life, as with anything, whether it's COVID or blindness or anything else, are some good things that can come out of it. And so I think we just have to be aware of those and appreciative of those because those can bring us back to gratitude, particularly for the circumstances that we can't change. We can't change COVID. I can't change my blindness. But again, what meaning do I want to attach to those things that I can't choose? I agree. I, I think COVID has given us all an opportunity to slow down and evaluate what we're doing in life and Again, not to discount all of the negative that has come of it. So if you, if you had to give advice to the listeners who are hearing your story today, people who are looking for jobs, people who are trying to figure out what's next with their blindness or visual impairment, people who are trying to support people looking for jobs, mm-hmm. what advice would you give people? I would say think about something that you have a passion for that you really love doing. And so regardless of whatever it is that people choose to do, the nature of career and work is you're going to have to work really, really hard at whatever it is. That's just the normal pace in the corporate world. And I'd say as a blind person, you're probably going to have to work a little harder. I know I have, I've had to work harder than, Everyone else, I had to learn how to write code to engineer my software, JAWS, just to be able to do my job. Not many people, you know, who are sighted have to learn how to write code and build software just to do their jobs. But I, but I did. And I was okay with that because I, my dad raised me with a really old-fashioned technique and required a lot of work out of both my brother and I. And so I was willing to do all of that because I wanted my goal more than I didn't want to, you know, to, to do you know, the extra work. So I think it's really important to find something that you love doing, whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be the, 
necessarily what you do on a day-to-day basis, but the mission that you support, do something that means something to you that's purpose-oriented. And it could be like, for example, now I'm, I've been spending what the last year and a half on this book. I've worked night and day, night and day between that and my, my day job. Well, it hasn't felt like work because it means something to me. I'm passionate about it because it is so near and dear to my heart. The extra work doesn't feel like work. It's just something I'm doing in pursuit of my purpose, my why, the reason I'm on the planet. And so I think if people can find something that they're really passionate about, whether it's you know the job that they do, the mission they support in their job, the industry, the outcomes they're creating for people, I think that can be a really inspiring thing that can give people the motivation to persist in the face of adversity and to put in the extra work when they sometimes maybe don't want to. If the, if the passion is there and the purpose aligns with who they are, and what they want out of their life, then it's not going to feel as much like work. Yeah, I want to repeat something you said to that you it's important to want the goal more than you don't want whatever is involved getting the there. So it's important to want something bad more badly than you don't want the pain. You said it better. But yeah, you're, I like you're absolutely right. You you're absolutely it. right. <laughs> well, it's it's how badly do you want it? Right. Do you want it badly enough? Like for me, you know, is it fun getting up every day at 5 a.m. to work out? No. Are there days I want to sleep in? Yeah. But I want to be in shape and I want to take care of me more than I want to sleep in. I want it badly enough. I wanted to learn how to write code and be independent in my job more than I wanted to have some spare time in my evenings and watch whatever TV series is on. I was willing to sacrifice my evenings and my weekends and whatever it was in support of my goal. Whatever it is, if you want, whatever it is you want out of life, if you want it badly enough, you can have it. You just have to want it badly enough. Now, yeah, you'll have to have a plan and a strategy, but it really does get down to action. Life rewards action. Great ideas are fantastic, but they're really a dime a dozen. The people who are successful figure out how to execute and turn actions and ideas into actions and actions into outcomes. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, walking us through, giving us a little inspiration about pursuit, because I think right now more than ever, people are feeling pretty discouraged. I've heard a lot of blind people say they think COVID has made employment harder. And I appreciate you saying, yeah, you might have to work harder. So, you know, go ahead. And so... I appreciate you talking with us and certainly if I ever need to make a profit, I will be calling you because <laughs> apparently you're good at financial advice and you'll make billions for me. So you'll probably well, hear that's... from me again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Brooke. Thank you for the opportunity to talk. And if people want to learn more about me, they can go to my website at chadefoster.com. They can go to the book landing page. That's blindambitionbook.com. All my social media handles are there and all the links to whether it's Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Books a Million, all that stuff's out there on those two sites. Perfect. Thank you so much, Chad. Yep. Thank you, Brooke. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Let's Get to Work, a podcast from the Employment Committee at the American Council of the Blind. 
Have questions, episode ideas, or feedback? Feel free to email Brooke Jostet, the committee chair, at B-R-O-O-K-E underscore J-O-S-T-A-D at Comcast.net. Until next time, work it.